0: This episode of the History Files is brought to you by Audible. Visit audibletrial.com slash historyfiles to start your free trial membership. The human mind
1: many years ago. The guns at Malta evoke again the echo... In June 1948, all road and rail communications. Some things just aren't easy to explain. The History Files. We bring history to you. Episode 85 of the History Files, coming to you from the fourth week of March 2017 here in the Pacific Northwest, where March has come in like a lion and is continuing to roar.
0: Yep, it's circling the block like a lion right now.
1: (laughs) Yes, we had some pretty extensive rain and hail and storming yesterday. Today it actually tried to have some sunshine, but yeah.
0: basically it's one of those wait if you don't like the weather, wait five minutes sort of things. No, it's um, a whole fifteen. Okay, whole fifteen minutes. Yeah, yeah. And we get these little micro storms around here too, where literally it'll be a thunderstorm that's about fifty feet wide. I, it's bizarre. So you just never know. Uh, yeah. So here we are in March, almost done with March. Sorry, we're getting this out a little bit late this week. Life has been a little crazy. So let's just get right to the news. This is Hollywood, porting past a thousand. What else came of my trip to the library?
1: Romance, education, entertainment.
0: First up today is something kind of bizarre, archaeologically speaking. Uh, I'll have a link to it in the show notes. It is the Norwood Cove object. It's this funny little daggery, spearheady, finial y iron object that was dug up over on the East Coast somewhere. In Maine. In Maine, yeah. Northeast of the United States. And nobody can decide definitively what the heck this thing is it
1: seems to be uh from the battlefield from 1613 between colonists uh, from jamestown and some french and a uh, french jesuit colony uh that they were trying to plant there in maine um obviously the english disputed their territorial claims of the french in maine uh and anyway, this object was dug up um, fairly deep, like 18 inches down, uh, deeper than a plow would would cut. So it's taken a while for it to perk
0: up to the surface. Yeah,
1: but it's the weirdest looking thing. Uh, it looks to me like it should be just a decorative object, but yet there's no way to really attach it to anything like the end of a pole or whatever. It's certainly not a dagger.
0: No, it's is it somebody's journeyman ironworking artsy dagger art project from the 18th century,
1: or who knows? Yeah, it's, it's weird.
0: It's interesting. So here you go, internet world. Everybody, pitch in their brains and see if we can figure this out. Also, I can't remember who suggested this. I can't remember if it was. Uh, a Twitter follower, John Matthews, or who brought this to our attention. I'm sorry if I'm not crediting the right person, but thank you, whoever uh, pointed this out. Also, last week on Gordon's Gun Closet, just FYI, we did a neat show on the Indiana Jones films. So this is not strictly a historical thing, although Indiana Jones is set in a historical setting in the world in the early 19th sorry, early 20th century so uh, if you are interested in historical firearms and fun adventure movies check check that out, we've got a link to that in the show notes and we also did a little uh, YouTube special for that too at our Bad Cat Productions YouTube channel if you want to take a look at some of those fun guns from the Indiana Jones movies Yesterday
1: lives again Main topic for the day is the Battle of Port Gamble. This is of particular interest to us because we live on Gamble Bay, which Port Gamble actually is on. It's not in exactly. Washington State. In Washington State in the United States, we're on the western edge of Washington and we're on the western edge of the Kitsap Peninsula. Towards the top, uh, if you check out a map, you'll see this little indentation off Hood Canal called Gamble Bay. And this little town of Port Gamble is there. And there was actually a, yeah, I wouldn't call it a huge, but a certainly a, a notable little conflict between the uh, Native Americans and... And the United States Navy. It was it was an
0: actual altercation. It wasn't long and drawn out. It didn't last a week or anything. But there were there were issues going were on issues in the area,
1: and casualties were uh, uh, exchanged. Uh, but it's a particular note for two reasons. One is there was between the United States Navy and Native Americans, and it was mm, on our doorstep, literally, uh, literally. So background to this is that, and of course, this happened on November 20th and 21st of uh, 1856. It's considered part of the Greater Puget Sound War. Governor Isaac Stevens, who's the territorial governor, was kind of at fault for this war and also the Yakima War, which this was sort of associated with, in that he was kind of a nutcase and went zipping around the territory uh, negotiating Treaties, well, kind of sort of negotiating treaties. He browbeat people into these treaties uh, by which most of the Native Americans lost their lands. They
0: and they're still trying to get it back to this day. They've, they've over the last hundred years, they've been slowly buying it back. Which is, yes, which is kind of awesome.
1: Yeah, they've been buying it back by uh, through profits through their casinos, which I think is really neat. Mm-hmm. But Stevens um, it was pretty much a shyster, and they retained fishing rights, which people now today are complaining about. But hey, that's the only thing they got left out of the whole deal, so they certainly deserve that anyway. This this greater Puget Sound war um, was, there was a lot of of unrest and unsettlement going on and some Haida and or Tlingit warriors from Southern Alaska decided to come and take advantage of the situation. Now um, there's some dispute as to whether these were in fact from the Haida tribe or the Tlingit tribe, the big, What's known is that they were in Haida canoes, and the Haida from southern Alaska and northern British Columbia were absolutely extraordinary canoe makers. They'd make these huge uh, 60-foot canoes, seagoing canoes, out of single logs of red cedar that would house 60—I've even seen claims of 100 warriors in some of these things. Uh, These are big seagoing canoes and some of them had masts and sails so they were pretty impressive. At any rate, we know that there were seven or eight of these seagoing canoes which these warriors uh in this raid used and came down into Puget Sound. Actually not well yeah actually they did go into Puget Sound. Um they raided clear down to near Olympia, present day Olymp well it was Olympia then too, the city of Olympia. Um Now, one thing to keep in mind is that there was a tradition of raiding and even headhunting going on amongst the uh, Native Americans in this part of the world. Uh, There's a really cool movie uh, filmed by Edward M. Curtis called In the Land of the Headhunters, and it is on YouTube. It is really, really neat. He made it in like I think it was nineteen oh six.
0: You if you're a fan of, of early black and white silent film clips of the, of especially of the Pacific Northwest, then you have seen clips from this. You've <laughs> seen the clip of the, the big war canoes approaching the beach with the guys standing in the bows One's doing, doing an eagle in, yep. or a
1: raven mm-hmm. and the other fellows a bear yep,
0: doing the dance. And that that's the clip that is shown most often in on the History Channel or wherever, when they're talking about Pacific Northwest Indians, because it's just so spectacular. But I believe that it was more given a more politically correct title later. Yes, it was. It's called in like in the land of the Northwest the, or something, or something tame. Something. Yeah, but, and, but the original title was in l- the land, land of, of the, the head headhunters. Hunters. Yeah, anyone who thinks that who has the rose-colored historical retroactive glasses on thinking that the native americans were all peaceful and happy and got along with each other (laughs) until the evil white man came along needs to crack a book
1: because yeah they
0: they had some pretty ugly things going on even in the relatively quiet pacific northwest
1: yeah it was actually wealthy enough due to the extremely rich fishing grounds that people had time to Embark in warfare. Oh yeah, sort of for there were fun. these
0: dumb little feuds where they were constantly picking at each other and taking slaves and collecting heads and yes. doing dumb stuff like that.
1: And in fact, historically, not just in the the Americas but in Europe as well, uh, scalp hunting or you know taking of scalps was sort of the easy way of doing it. Uh, and also, the well considered less, less cool, destructive. yeah, less destructive because, but most people took heads uh, because that was cooler. So, when it's pointed out that, oh, the white man introduced scalp hunting, well, yes, but that was because heads were too awkward to carry around. So, anyway, uh, and of course. <sighs> European ancestors also did head hunting, so <laughs> I'm certainly not standing here pointing fingers because they turn around and point at me, too. Anyways, um, these fellows raided into Puget Sound in the hopes of collecting some slaves and booty. And again, they were doing this. The last slave raid, I believe, was like in like 1906 or something yeah. like that. Yeah. It was quite late. Um and again, there were. This is in the wake of the unsettled conditions uh, during the war between some of the some of the local Native Americans and some of the white settlers. Uh, this was not a general war between all the whites and all the Native Americans. It was uh, pretty much in the area of uh, the what's now the Green River. It was then called the White River, and uh, Seattle proper.
0: Yeah. Just like in, in, in any culture, you're going to have rabble-rousers, and there were rabble-rousers in some of the tribes around here.
1: And amongst the white settlers, yep, too.
0: There were people who just couldn't get along.
1: Yep. Uh, the Puget Sound War, which had been ignited by Governor Stevens in his treaties with the Native tribes, um, also... Uh, encouraged depredations by some of the local whites who had formed voluntary military units against the Indians uh, on the east side of Puget Sound. Um, The Battle of Seattle had been fought in January of 1856, and that's certainly worth a uh, History Files talk of its own. But it pitted sailors and Marines of the crew of the USS Decatur, a 44-gun frigate, along with the local militia, most according to the sailors, most of the local militia spent their time drunk, uh, hiding in the blockhouse. Uh, there's some really amusing stories that go along with that, but um, they fought off the warriors from some local tribes and some tribes, uh, from east of the Cascades, too. And there were warriors. some,
0: there were some pretty crotchety. Tribes east of oh, the Cascades. Yes. There were some.
1: The Walla Wallas, especially, uh-huh. were were well known for being very tough customers.
0: The, the Yakimas or the, and the Yakimas yeah, and they, Spokane. They, they these guys mm-hmm. would go all the way down to California to to go on war parties and. Raiding.
1: Oh yes, and they
0: were not. They were tough customers, and they were always looking for a fight.
1: Yes, in 1846, in fact, uh, the uh, Walla Wallas had gone down to uh, the Sacramento area to get some revenge for the death of the uh, son of one of the chiefs.
0: Yeah, now think about that, people. Sacramento, California, in a modern-day automobile— that is
1: a very long. That's a fourteen-hour
0: drive from Seattle yeah. to Sacramento. It's, it's
1: a good eight hundred miles. Yeah, so
0: that that was no mean
1: feat. They meant business. They meant business. Yes, um, <clears throat> at the Battle of the of Seattle, the um, one of the only things that kept Seattle intact from being burnt to the ground was the naval artillery provided by the Decatur, as well as the uh, the shore party, which actually did most of the active defense. Um, in this situation, a few months later came these Haida and Tlingit warriors. They first ventured deep into Puget Sound and harassed some loggers near Olympia. The local army forces at Fort Steilacoom sent word to a naval vessel now that was at that point in Puget Sound waters, the USS Massachusetts, which was a much smaller vessel, but it was it was considered a gunboat, but it was also a steam-powered. Yeah, it was an vessel.
0: auxiliary steam auxiliary
1: yes ship yep was con- yeah, a steamer so it had a lot more maneuverability in the closer waters the closer confines of Puget Sound and Hood Canal uh, but anyway that they, they were um, word was sent from the colonel at Fort Stillicum to escort these Indians out of the area not to attack them to escort them
0: and Stillicum is down by Tacoma right
1: yes yeah. it's pretty much yeah it's very close to present day uh uh, joint base mccord and lewis so this tlingit haida raiding party moved north to the port madison area which is basically on and in the environs of present day the present day town of Sequamish and bainbridge island where they commenced to raid and, you know, extract. they tried to capture some slaves and uh, burned a couple of buildings. The USS Massachusetts followed, but they were about a day behind. They finally caught up with the raiders on November 20th on the other side of the Kitsap Peninsula uh, at Gamble Bay, which is where we are. Mm-hmm. as where we're
0: standing right now. We're about,
1: you know, less than a thousand yards <laughs> from Gamble Bay proper. And this, this is the home to the Skalalum people. The local village there is known today as Little Boston. And uh, again, it's about a mile. Uh, the whole Little Boston is only about a mile from our house. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's where the, I go to the ferry. Yes. Across the bay, uh, which isn't a very big bay, by the way, was a lumber mill owned by Keller, Pope, and Talbot, uh, which had sounded the alarm when the raiding party paddled into the bay. The... They employed both local whites and the Sklalem people. And so um, all of these people crowded into a blockhouse, which they'd actually constructed in case such a thing had occurred. This this was not a rare occurrence, by the way. The
0: blockhouse was at Port Gamble? It was
1: at Port Gamble, yes. Um, so that's across the bay from the present village. Within a few hours, though, the Massachusetts actually steamed into the rescue. And this is what's really neat about the whole situation, is that the U.S. Navy was coming to the rescue of the local native population to rescue them from the depredations of these Alaskans. Pretty much. Which is, I think, pretty cool. And um, so when the Massachusetts showed up, when it steamed into view, the raiding party beached their war canoes and they fled into the woods. Uh, There's a little bit of question, certainly in my mind, as to just where the raiders landed and fled to. Um, Some claim it was right there at Port Gamble, just just to the south of Port Gamble. Some claim that it was on the other side. On our side. On our side. And, uh, well, I'll mention a couple of things later, which suggest to me that somebody was on our side. Uh, Our side of the bay. Our side of the bay. Uh, The commander or the captain of the Massachusetts was Commander Samuel Swarthout. The U.S. Navy, and through an interpreter, he tried to coax the raiders out with the intention of escorting them out of the area. Unfortunately, this was to no avail. He landed 18 sailors from the Massachusetts to encourage the raiders, who continued to refuse the offer. The next morning, on November 21st, again the 18 sailors were landed, uh, and they were met with gunfire from the raiders. Swartout responded with gunfire from the deck guns of the Massachusetts and small arms fire from his sailors. The sailors then proceeded to burn the beached canoes.
0: Well, then how are those guys supposed to go back home?
1: Mm, they don't get to. Oh. <laughs> We're going to remove their mobility. Ah, Two da- They didn't burn all of them. Okay. So a couple of days later, the Haida or Tlingit raiding party surrendered and they were given 24 hours to bury their dead they actually had 27 uh, warriors who were killed and one sailor a fellow by the name of gustav engelbrecht who was a coxswain from the massachusetts was also killed the warriors presently lie in unmarked graves on the over here at little boston at little boston well i'm not sure that's Hmm. part of the problem is that they or they import gamble They are probably in Port Gamble or just south of Port Gamble. But I don't know exactly because, Hmm. again, there's been some dispute as to where it was. (laughs) They're
0: unmarked. But we know where Engelbrecht
1: is. Engelbrecht is buried in Port Gamble on the summit of a very nice little hill that has a small cemetery. Um, And he is the first American sailor known to have been killed in the Pacific region, certainly in the northern Pacific uh and uh since he's very close to some very major naval bases um he his grave is very well tended to yep um always has little american flags on it and the local sailors try to keep keep it in good repair
0: mm-hmm. i'll have a i'll put a picture of that in the in the header imagery for this episode
1: yeah it's interesting to note that Cannonballs of various sizes have been found along the shore near Port Gamble. And my friend Ted George, who presently is the senior male uh, elder in the Skalalam tribe, he's also a member of the Suquamish tribe, which is interesting because his mother and father were from different tribes and couldn't even speak—they had to speak English (laughs) to understand each other. When did he
0: become senior elder?
1: When his older brother passed away. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. but and I have to interview Ted. He's just an amazing, amazing man. He's he's done all kinds of phenomenal things. He
0: has some stories, and he's um, he's kind of a mover and shaker. He he wasn't content just to go fish or do. I mean, he went got a at least one degree. He's, he's
1: got yeah. He's one of the first. He's a uh, Native Americans to uh, get a degree in. Um, uh, In Washington, and I think he's the first to get a graduate degree from University of Washington. Oh, wow! So he's he's a really neat guy, and was very much involved in the um, American Indian movement, but on the the smart side of of forcing the United States government and the Bureau of Indian Affairs to actually uphold their treaty obligations. What? Yeah, I know it's kind of crazy talk, but he used the law. Uh, and he, one of his jobs was to go around and inform other native tribes, uh, what their rights were. And he did the same for the native Hawaiians too. Oh, good for him. Yeah. Very neat stuff. Anyway, he'd, he'd be a good interview. Anyway, Ted showed me a, um, an unexploded shell. It'd be, it was an explosive shell that, didn't go off, and it luckily is now sands a um, fuse and gunpowder. It's a round ball, right? Round ball, yep. From a, I believe it's from a twelve pounder that his brother found in the woods in the shore, not very far from our house. From our house. From our house in oh. the nineteen thirties. So it's entirely. That was the impression I got. I'll have to ask him again. So definitely but, on this side, though. But this side. So
0: it had to have been launched from the boat from the ship. This direction, yeah. So, so you're, of course, then your theory is that this is the side, right? But where... I know
1: they've, or, or it could have been several places. They could have gone to. Oh, okay. They could have scattered.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a long, narrow bay. It runs north south, and uh, yeah, you, know, you could easily swim across it.
1: Yeah, there's there's a couple of very interesting interviews with some local folks um, on YouTube that uh, is interesting. They're talking about the various cannonballs that that show up on the shore. Hmm. Uh, from time to time, what are these from? Well, I don't know, but um, but there's plenty who do know. So at any rate, the uh, <clears throat> the raiding party was given time to bury their dead. And what I found really interesting was from several sources I found they were issued with a food ration from the Massachusetts, consisting of bread and molasses. Um, OK. Yeah. Like that was a standard ration for sailors. So they issued these guys the same ration since they were going to be dragging them away uh, and effectively under arrest. Uh,
0: so basically uh, they escorted them to the border.
1: Yes. They they actually towed them. Well, you uh, kind of
0: have to. There's so much water north of
1: here. <laughs> yeah. They towed the remaining boats, the these war canoes, out. To the Straits of Juan de Fuca, and they took them into Victoria Harbor, where they... Which is
0: Canada. In Canada. For those who don't know. And
1: presented them to the British governor of British Columbia, James Douglas. Douglas refused to take them. He said, they're not my Indians. They belong to the Russians. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so I don't want them. Swarthout supposedly threatened to just drop them off at some island off of Vancouver Island, which we talked about earlier, by the way, in our, uh, what's in a name, uh, just threatened to drop them off and be done with it. But Douglas pointed out that this would cause an international incident. Uh, Sort Eventually, simply put them adrift in the middle of the straits with no, <laughs> with without uh, paddles or anything else. Just here, <laughs> okay. Go where you want to go, but don't come come back this way. Um, and washed his hands of the whole thing. Being as one of the war chiefs had been killed in the exchange, though one of the twenty-seven dead was one of their war chiefs. Um, the this. This raiding party, be they Haida or Tlingit or a combination of both, one of their traditions was: if one of your war chiefs gets killed, um, you have to extract revenge. And that's what they did. So
0: we're just going to continue the dumb feuds. Basically, there's no end to it. Yeah, pretty much.
1: Pretty much. So the next year, another war party, probably made up of mostly the same guys, returned for revenge. But this time, they went to Whidbey Island. Which Which is is pretty, you
0: know... It's north of here.
1: It's, it's a little ways north.
0: Yeah, they didn't come down here where the fracka happened.
1: Right, but they went because they knew that they'd get thumped. But they went to Whidbey Island. It's not. It's not really that far away. Certainly it's not a by canoe. Different tribe too. I mean, who was living on Whidbey? They weren't after the tribe. They were after the white guy living oh, there. Oh, oh,
0: oh! And
1: um, the first white settler there, a guy named Isaac Eby, who is also the local customs official filled the bill of a chief that they could extract revenge on so they did, they did him they did him in they murdered him and decapitated him and brought their brought his head home as a trophy so that was sort of a an ugly end to that whole thing were they thing. ever prosecuted for that no because they were from alaska <sighs> and we didn't know alaska yet so they they basically escaped back off into the mists of the northern pacific um, they didn't come back down, <laughs> however, and as both the United States and, uh, British governments were able to start extracting a little bit more control over what was going on in their oceans, um, or the oceans surrounding their possessions, this day of, they of, of course, expropriated from the native Americans, the, um, uh, Raids like this became rarer and rarer. But as I said, the last one was after 1900. So they didn't end immediately by any means. Uh, There were a few more raids into the Puget Sound area by the Russian Indians after that. Um, There was one on... uh, Against the Sequamish at Bainbridge Island in eighteen fifty eight another one was across the sound in eighteen sixty, but then there really weren't a whole lot more after that. just that one last hurrah i
0: think I think by the time you get into the nineteen teens I, I i there's the tri- I think the motorbugs. tribes are getting tired of
1: of all of it, and they'd also been so decimated by disease yeah. and and alcohol. And they're and just trying. Like they're
0: just trying to struggle along while all the white people are
1: invading the area, and and it just this just becomes—this is not helping. Absolutely. And, you know, raiding had been a huge part of the culture in the northern uh, Pacific—let me rephrase that—the Pacific Northwest uh, for centuries. But with the coming of the white man's rules of behavior, whether English or American, uh, that behavior was forced to change. Neither the Queen's officials or in British North America, nor the American officials in Washington Territory, um, and after eighteen sixty seven, American officials in Alaska were interested in allowing that to continue. Disease, as I mentioned, uh, racked these tribes all across. Well, all across the Americas, it's been estimated something like ninety percent of Native Americans. Native American populations died from Old World diseases, whether brought by Europeans, Asians, or Africans. Um, the Native Americans had no natural immunities to these, and they died in droves. Um, what is really interesting, though, is that now that native the Native peoples of Washington, British Columbia, and Alaska. Uh, have others to combat rather than one another, and this time they do it through the courts, as my friend Ted George does or did. He's retired now. Uh, and, of course, through state and federal or provincial and and uh, uh, national legislatures. So <clears throat> it's really an interesting little footnote in history. Uh, we have this Odd little situation where the U.S. Navy is called to come to the rescue. It's not the cavalry coming to the rescue; it's the Navy coming to the rescue, and it's not whites that they are actually there primarily to um, to defend, defend, to rescue, but local Native Americans who are under the protection of the United States government. So it's a very it's a fascinating little footnote. Um, and of course, there's a lot more to it. As always, there's more to things than meet the eye. But it's it's a fascinating culture. Uh, if you if you've seen totem poles, oh, that's where they come from. Is this part of the world? No headdresses, but definitely totem poles.
0: Yeah, lots of lots of pretty pretty carving.
1: Amazing, amazing uh, physical culture. You know, yeah. uh, material culture.
0: And and the tribes around here are really trying to revive that. And I know the Suquamish tribe has a really nice museum and a cultural Mm -hmm. center. The little Boston center just down, you know, a mile away from a walking distance from us has done some really beautiful things. They've put up some beautiful buildings with that are kind of there. They've hired architects who are trying to evoke the traditional architecture, the Mm -hmm. lodge architecture. So it's really it really fits into the landscape there. There are. To- small totem pole style um art installations going up just along the road as decorations as you drive down mm-hmm. the road here into the into the reservation really they're really trying to they the kids are learning the original language mm-hmm. they're learning how to do, they do canoe carving down here. They're learning yes. how to do the fiber arts with the cedar bark, making cedar bark capes and mm-hmm. baskets and basket boxes. They're really trying to oh, encourage the the local
1: the traditional culture. And here. both the Skalalum and the Suquamish tribes host the um, that canoe. Oh right! Journey.
0: Yeah. Every summer they do this this canoe journey thing where I don't I remember where it starts it starts
1: up in British Columbia okay it
0: starts in BC and it's basically every tribe along the way and it's this this huge flotilla of canoes and they go from tribe to tribe and you know it might take them a day or two to get to the next one and then they have this big camp out and, and a big you know a potlatch and cookout and stuff and they're there for a day or two and then they all get in the canoes and go to the next thing and and they work their way down I guess down Puget Sound. Yeah. I just know when Puget they're Sound. here and then they're in Suquamish
1: It's a big to-do. And
0: then they're headed uh, yeah, yeah. It's um it's quite a, it's quite a deal every year.
1: Cuz that's part of the Chief Seattle Days celebration. Oh, they probably time it yeah. to get
0: Suquamish for Chief Seattle Days. And that's another good episode of History Files. We need to do one on Chief Seattle even though he wouldn't like it. <laughs> because part of the deal with Chief Seattle was he you know local figure and they oh we want to honor you and we're going to name the city after you and he says no don't do that because apparently in their tradition every time you speak someone's name it makes them restless in their grave oh, well and but they named the whole city after him anyway
1: luckily that wasn't really his name
0: well we don't pronounce it correctly <laughs> seattle is not how you pronounce it or spell it so so i guess we're off the hook <laughs> But uh yeah, he is he is buried in Suquamish. That's where mm-hmm. my dad lives, It's just a few miles away. And it's um this there's just so much culture around here. And speaking of the the gentleman photographer who did in the land of the headhunters film, what Edward Curtis is really known for is his still photography. Yes. And if you go over to Pioneer Square in Seattle, there is the Curtis Gallery there and you can see a lot of his original prints. Um I can't remember what process he used. It wasn't it's not your typical black and white photography. He did a lot. He did different types. Was using different chemistry. And now I can't remember what we, we should just do one on Edward Curtis sometime oh, yeah. because he's fascinating, really interesting guy, and he is almost single handedly responsible for visually documenting the basically the very last gasp of the Pacific Northwest mm-hmm. native cultures around here. And he he has his images are are. World famous.
1: Which I will say that the native culture in the Pacific Northwest managed to hang on to their own culture a lot longer than most of the Native Americans because luckily there really wasn't a whole lot of gold or Mm -hmm. things here for, I mean, the white people moved in for lumber. Yep. But um, the. The Puget Sound War was pretty much it as far as serious violence, and it yeah. wasn't much.
0: Despite the best efforts of the civilizing white folks around here. I mean, they, they took all the the native kids around here at the beginning of the 19th, 20th century. They took them all the way to boarding schools oh, yeah. and forbade them to speak the native language and made them wear white man clothes. and and But still, it's coming back. Just like in Hawaii, they're really trying to get people to be aware of their their... Native culture and their traditions. And, you know, not everybody's into it, but I think there's enough people, especially a lot of the kids are really into it and they really try to encourage them. In fact, they, you know, basically it's one of those things where if you don't keep your grades up and and stay on the straight and narrow, you don't get to go on that canoe journey in the summertime. You have to earn it. So it's a little incentive and... And it's, we'll
1: send you to public school. No, no, <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> yeah. So it's it's pretty fascinating. And as a little side story, I don't know. I, I guess I maybe I should save this for when we talk about Chief Seattle. But I had a friend when I was a kid in junior high and high school who lived when when I lived at home with my parents in Suquamish, and they uh, they had property just down the beach from us in Miller Bay. And this was an old, old family from Seattle, pretty well-to-do, who had basically summer cabins along the stretch of beach in Miller Bay. And one of the patriarchs of the family, Holmes Highland, he and his wife just went ahead and moved to this little cottage in Miller Bay at some point when he retired and were there permanently. And I just discovered him when I was walking down the beach one day. Really interesting character. And he was in his late 80s when I... Knew him. Well, well, uh, we can date him exactly. I believe he was born in 1901 so that would have put him okay so that would have put him in 78 or in, 79 and, in his late 70s so late 70s not late 80s so he was he was up there but he was great he he went to military school as a kid he'd let me borrow his sword so i could go play pirates in the wood. his old <laughs> military school sword and i'd i'd roll him around in my boat and we'd pretend we were pirates and we had lots of fun but that was holmes and he had these stories about when the cabin that he was living in was just the family summer cabin. And of course, they were rich people living in Seattle. They'd come over this summer. And his mom would just go rustic when they came over. And this was, you know, right in the 19-teens.
1: 19-aughts, yeah.
0: 19-aughts, when he was just a little bit... Well, he remembers horse-drawn... He remembered horse-drawn trolleys in Seattle. He remembered when Skid Row was actually... Skid Row when they were skidding Skid logs. Road. Yeah, Skid Road, when they were actually skidding logs down the hill. He remembers all this stuff, so he he saw the transition from horse drawn to to uh, you know motor automobiles. He this guy had great stories, but his mom, the local Indians called her the blue eyed Indian. Because she would wear her hair in braids, and when she needed to get groceries, she'd pile in the canoe and paddle her canoe around to Paulsboe from Miller Bay. That's a ways. It's a long ways. This was, this was probably, It probably took her half a day or so to get to—I mean, she'd paddle over to Bainbridge Island. Oh, yeah, she'd have to, to go through Agate or,
1: Pass and all that. Uh-huh. That's, pretty... that's,
0: a, that's a long paddle, and she probably timed it with the tide to her advantage <laughs> so she wasn't fighting the tide. Yes. But uh, it just— great story so she yeah his mom was the blue eyed indian but it just and this wasn't that long ago you know this just literally was 100 years ago which seems to younger people to seem like a long time but it's not that long of a time when there were no big roads around here it was all thick trees mm-hmm. and canoes and there were still indians living in lodges and it wasn't that long ago. and like you say that last raid was in Nineteen oh something about six or something.
1: Yeah, it was yeah. incredible.
0: So kind of crazy. It's we don't have the deep history that that some of you guys have over in Europe and and in the UK, but we have some interesting history too. <laughs> it just isn't quite as old as yours. But we
1: don't have Vikings, but we do have Klingits. We
0: did have we did have interesting raids and crazy stuff going on. So so anyway, that was all about the Battle of Port Gamble. It wasn't a big giant battle in world history. But it, it was a pretty big deal around here, and uh, certainly at the time. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Show notes for this episode can be found at slash thf What is it yep. 85, eighty-five or eighty-six? Eighty-five. Holy cow! Bombing along. Uh, You can can also find us on Facebook, the History Files, or on Twitter. I think we're History, History Files Show on Twitter. And we really appreciate your support. We couldn't do this without you, our listeners. We're especially grateful to our patrons who support us through Patreon. Another great way to help us out is with ratings and reviews. If you get us through iTunes or Stitcher, leave us a review or some stars over there. That really helps our discoverability. So thank you so much. And also be sure to check out our new show, What's in a Name? It's a relatively short podcast, 10 to 15 minutes. We look at the origins of the name of a place or a thing. And new episodes go up every other Saturday. Supposedly, we didn't get one up today, which is when we're recording this. Everything's late this week. It's just work schedules and everything have been crazy. So we'll, we'll get it up ASAP. And you can find uh, that show at psycon.fm slash WIA.
1: Thanks then for joining us and tune in next week or two weeks or whenever the heck we do the next one for another exciting episode of The History Files
0: The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions a proud member of the SciCon podcast network for show notes, more episodes or to join the conversation on Slack visit us at scicon.fm slash thf we also invite you to consider supporting this and our other fine shows by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad cat.
1: Meow.